Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It was one of the quickest verdicts and shortest deliberations of any public murder trial in memory. At 6.41 p.m., after almost three hours of deliberation, the Colleton County jury reached a verdict. Alec Murdoch, guilty. He's been convicted of murdering his wife and son in June 2021. The former attorney was found guilty on all four counts. Judge Clifton Newman handed down two consecutive life sentences. Alec will be spending every waking second of the rest of his life in prison. This conviction marks the end of what has been deemed the trial of the century. A quick verdict like this means the jury didn't seem to trust a word that Alec said when he took the stand. They found him to be not only a liar, but a murderer. Alec's carefully choreographed testimony didn't seem to help his case. Quite the opposite, actually. As numerous jurors have since come and spoken out, and they all share a similar opinion. They weren't buying what he was selling. In the jury's eyes, the prosecution seemed to show enough evidence that Alec, in an attempt to garner sympathy and stave off questioning into his finances, planned and murdered his wife Maggie and son Paul with two different weapons to make it appear as a heinous two-shooter crime. And in the midst of it all, Alec's opioid addiction, driving much of the insanity. In his closing arguments, Prosecutor Creighton Waters said, quote, The pressures on this man were unbearable, and they were all reaching a crescendo on the day his wife and son were murdered by him. Those pressures mount, and that person becomes a family annihilator. End quote. So what is a family annihilator? We'll dive into that in a bit. So with the trial concluding, and Alec being convicted, you'd think this is the end. But to be honest, I don't believe it is. Every passing day, more and more is coming out about the corrupt Murdaws and their history in South Carolina. What a tangled web we weave, Alex said of himself and his lies. And that's exactly what I feel like this is. A tangled web that we haven't even come close to untangling. I still believe there are missing pieces to this case. And it feels like we've only just begun to scratch the surface in this stranger-than-fiction story. Welcome back to Avery After Dark. I'm your host, Avery Ross. I'm so happy you're here with me today. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. I got sick last week. I thought it was allergies at first, and then I thought it was just a little bug, but it just kept getting worse and worse. So in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, maybe it's strep throat because I had a killer sore throat. So I go up, get checked at the clinic, and negative on the strep, but what do you know? I got COVID. First timer here, I managed to avoid it for the past few years, but finally, it came for me. So bear with me, my voice is still a little bit raspy. For those who have had it, you know it just takes a little bit to kick it. And I am so ready to get back to the mysteries. 
And a reminder, if you're enjoying Avery After Dark, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much in growing the show so I can continue making more and more for you. And thank you so much to all of you who have left the nicest reviews. It just means so much. All right, let's jump back into the twisted world of Murdoch because there is so much more to the story. We saw Alec leaving the courthouse last week wearing a brown jumpsuit and handcuffs. He was released into the custody of the South Carolina Department of Corrections. Alec is currently being processed and evaluated at a center in Columbia. This includes having his head shaved as part of the department's standard procedures. In this process, over the next month and a half, will include medical tests and mental health and other assessments that'll help authorities decide which maximum security prison he'll be sent to. And we all saw this coming, but this past week, Alec Murdoch's attorneys filed a notice of appeal in the double murder case. Overall, this trial was one of the most complex and publicized in history, and it was the longest criminal trial in South Carolina history. Much darkness was brought to light in the trial. The most damning, the kennel video. Placing Alec at the scene of the crime minutes before the murders. This was a pivotal piece of evidence. We've talked a lot on this podcast about victims speaking from beyond the grave to help solve their own murders. And it appears that Paul Murdoch, the little detective, as his mom Maggie nicknamed him, helped solve his own murder. If not for that video, there probably wouldn't even have been a trial, to be honest. In many ways, that video was the smoking gun. Because Alec had lied about ever being down at the kennels before discovering the bodies. And the big question that everyone was asking was, if Alex didn't have anything to do with the murders, why would he lie? Why would an innocent man lie? Why wouldn't you want to give police any and every piece of information you have so they could investigate and track down the shooter as quickly and efficiently as possible? My big question is how Alec would even know to lie about being at the kennels and the time frame if he wasn't involved. Think about that for a second. How would Alec know to lie about being at the kennels at 8.45 p.m. that night if he wasn't involved and knew how and when the murders went down? Only the murderer would know when they were killed. Alec claims that he lied because he was paranoid, distrusting of SLED, and on drugs. Safe to say, no one really believed any of that. Another truly appalling moment in the trial was when the prosecution asked Alec about his newly changed alibi. And Alec says, yes, I did lie and I was down at the kennels. He said he drove the golf cart down there, got the chicken out of Bubba's mouth, and then, quote, got out of there, end quote. Such an unsettling choice of words. Creighton Waters, lead prosecutor, pointed out how strange this was. Alec didn't say... If only I had stayed a few more minutes, maybe I could have stopped this. He didn't say, maybe I could have protected them. Maybe I could have saved them. Nope. Alex said he got out of there. And when questioned about his final words to his wife Maggie and Paul before he left, Alec became very quiet on the stand. Suddenly didn't have much to say. You know, most people would go over those final conversations in their head every day for the rest of their lives. You're listening right now and you may be flashing back to a loved one and reflect on your last conversation with them. There's no forgetting that in a million years for most people. But when the prosecution asked Alec what he said to Maggie and Paul the last time he ever saw them alive, 
He didn't have much to say. Just said, well, I would have said, see you later. How someone can be so cold, so distant, is beyond comprehension. I remember when I first heard that Alec had been arrested in connection to Maggie and Paul's murders. And I recall my first knee-jerk reaction was, eh, that just can't be. Can it? Because the crimes are so unthinkable. You don't want to believe that a father could do that. There's something in us as people that can't make sense of it. Therefore, we don't accept it as truth. Unfortunately, husbands have been killing their wives as long as we can remember. But to shoot and kill your own child, your son, in such a brutal way is Old Testament bad. That kind of evil won't ever make sense to most people. So it didn't surprise me when throughout the trial, I saw many comments saying, he couldn't have done it. Maybe he was involved, but he didn't pull the trigger. But as we've seen, there's only one person that every single piece of circumstantial and direct evidence points to, and that is Alec Murdoch. There were only three people at the kennels that night, and only one person made it out alive. Pretty simple, if you ask me. Although, some were very persuaded by Alec's tears during the trial. The snot, the sobbing, the weeping, the bright red face. Was that emotion genuine? That's up to you to decide. But bear in mind, friends and work colleagues of Alec say that in courtrooms, he was known to use and manipulate emotions in order to get a court case to land in his favor. Even when John Marvin Murdoch took the stand, Alec's brother, he himself displayed that same choreographed manner. That the Murdochs were just this regular family. Privilege? Power? We've never heard of it. Give me a break. And Alec, poor Alec, was so addicted to opioids that he messed himself in the back of the car as he was withdrawing after the murders. Again, it was just Alec, Alec, Alec. Alec was sad. He was destroyed. He had to buy new clothes because he wasn't eating. It wasn't what the Murdoch family said on the stand that made me suspicious. It's what they didn't say. I saw no urgency to find Maggie and Paul's killer or killers. If they believe they're still out there somewhere, which they allege they do, why don't they vocalize it? Why aren't they adamant, hiring their own private investigators to track down the real killers? Why? Because... Alec isn't going to spearhead an investigation that would lead right back to him. That's why. There was a term that was brought up a few times during the trial. And that term is family annihilator. The term family annihilator is newer and a more unexplored area within the criminology field. But behind the scenes, experts have steadily been studying this specific type of perpetrator and it is truly one of the most bizarre you'll ever hear. Examples of family annihilators would be Chris Watts, who murdered his pregnant wife and two daughters, and John List, who murdered his mother, wife, and three children. In Alec Murdoch's case, it's a bit unusual as he left Buster Murdoch, his eldest son, alive. But let me break down the characteristics of a family annihilator, and let's see if it sounds familiar to you. This specific murderer is in most cases a middle-aged man who is perceived as a hardworking and loving husband and father. They are highly educated with an undergraduate and or postgraduate degree with a good job. 
He is usually the senior man of the house that may be paranoid, depressed, intoxicated, or a combination of all of these. In 90% of the cases, the family annihilator is a male offender coming from a good, respectable family with no criminal record. And this individual is perceived by neighbors, friends, family as a dedicated father and loyal husband with a successful job in life. All of this means that this perpetrator is the last person anyone would ever suspect. And we saw this with Alec. His friends and family are shocked, testifying that he only appeared to be a doting, loving husband and father. The family annihilator is usually involved in a long-term relationship and can be highly possessive over his wife and family. And in many of these cases, these men show zero signs of aggression or violence before the murders. So there is really no way to even foresee this coming. Studies found that most of the family annihilators had a personality disorder with a dependent or narcissistic tendency. So we have these middle-aged men that are seen as doting husbands and fathers. Everything seems to be fine. What happens? Male family annihilators are triggered by breakups or financial hardship. Loss of control, including a financial crisis, separation, or divorce or the possibility of a looming separation or divorce. When the family annihilator senses that he is losing control, that his life is crumbling around him, something in them snaps. So Alec Murdoch from an outward appearance looked to be dad of the year. And that's one thing that really threw everyone off. Witnesses testified that Alec adored Maggie, gave her anything she wanted. He got the boys anything they asked for. He proudly testified that he was the breadwinner for Maggie, Paul, and Buster. The sole breadwinner. It all came from him. And he wasn't just supporting them in a financial sense. He was the coach for the boys' sports teams. They were known to take these big, extravagant family trips. Alec bought cars for them. The family had numerous homes. The Murdochs spent a lot of time together. During the trial, we also saw cell data records that the Murdochs were nearly in constant communication, texting, calling, all day, every day. Colleagues testified that Alec would straight up walk out of a deposition if his family called him. It didn't seem to matter what he was doing, he would never, ever ignore a call from his family. He would hop on the phone with them and make sure that they were okay and that they were taken care of. All of these characteristics make the family annihilator all that more perplexing. Because as I said before, this is the last person you would think could be capable of killing their family. But so much of Alec's behavior aligns with this type of criminal profile. Smart, educated man, loves his family, but when financial pressures intensify, whether those be financial issues or the possibility of a looming divorce, it takes a really violent turn. And it's obvious that Alec was absolutely losing control of his life around the time of the murders. He was a walking financial crisis and his life was over. In order to feel in charge of their own lives, to regain control, to feel like a man, they murder those closest to them, creating this big sudden tragic loss. Because family annihilators love themselves the most and will always choose themselves. And these perpetrators will also go to extremes to justify their actions. These types of individuals don't have remorse like normal people. They don't think, oh my gosh, what have I done? Their brains don't work like that. 
they feel like I did what I needed to do. And also, they feel that they would get away with it as well. And that's the exact feeling I get from Alec Murdoch. After Alec was sentenced, I found myself still not making sense of it all. So I began researching family annihilators and the criminology aspect, the profile. And as soon as I did, I was like, oh my gosh, this is Alec. He fits the profile to a T. We all know that there were quite a few rumors and rumblings that Maggie and Alec's marriage wasn't as strong as he would like for everyone to believe. I also thought it was really strange that the possibility of a divorce between Maggie and Alec wasn't discussed during the trial. Because we know that divorce, separation, is a huge motive. And something that I don't think was covered enough in the trial. A source close to the Murdoch family said that Maggie had a lot of responsibility in the family, but no authority. Blanca Simpson, the Murdoch's housekeeper, testified that Maggie came to her one day and told her that she didn't feel that Alec was telling her the whole story about their finances and said that he keeps her in the dark. And this was validated when Marion Proctor, Maggie's sister, said that Maggie was not preoccupied with the finances. Alec handled that. Alec was the breadwinner. Alec was the final yes or final no in that family. Maggie and the boys belonged to Alec. The Murdoch name would be upheld in that family, whatever it took. And prior to the murders, we know that family credit cards were declining. One report said Maggie had just over $50 left in one of her bank accounts. Alec and Maggie were living separate lives before the murders. She had to be lured to go to Moselle that night. Maggie was allegedly looking into hiring a forensic accountant because she just didn't understand why the family had no money. And it's been widely circulated that Maggie had or was planning to meet with a divorce attorney in Charleston. And all of this was recently validated by a woman who goes by Aaron. Aaron came forward after the trial ended. Aaron was Maggie Murdoch's former nail tech. And Aaron said that Maggie told her that she was seeking a divorce prior to the murders. Aaron was even on the witness list for the prosecution, but was warned that the defense would most likely try to discredit her, so she wasn't called to testify. But when questioned what she thought when she heard that Maggie had been murdered, her first thought? The divorce. I wish that Aaron was able to testify about Maggie's comments to her, because this paints such a different picture for everyone, and I believe helps prove motive even more. Alec is a smart guy, and I think he knew what was coming. Financial ruin, and I think he knew his marriage was over. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. I can imagine that Alec was probably viewed as king of the hill at home. There's a sense of pride that comes with all that, being this big family man, the provider. And for him to know that Maggie, his kids, wouldn't be looking at him like that anymore when all of his crimes were about to be revealed was probably a very hard pill to swallow for him. Earlier this week, a shocking interview dropped with Randy Murdoch, Alec's older brother and former law partner. Randy seems to be in a very different boat than John Marvin. He didn't testify in his brother's defense and only showed up to the trial here and there. In his interview with the New York Times, Randy said he remains unsure if Alec murdered his son and wife. Randy added that he respected the jury's verdict, but has only known Alec as a protective father and husband. Here we go again with that. Randy then said, quote, He knows more than what he's saying. He's not telling the truth, in my opinion, about everything there. 
end quote. Randy also gave some insight about he and Alex's relationship, saying that the two were never very close. They went to the same college and worked at the law firm together, but Randy said they weren't alike, so they didn't do stuff together. Now, this is a 180, because if you remember, in the days following the murders back in 2021, Randy and John Marvin Murdoch did a network TV interview claiming that their brother, Alec, was devastated and so distraught by the murders. They were standing by his side, really rallying behind him. But it seems Randy, at least, has changed his tune. It's said that Randy has not spoken to Alec in over a year. This interview with Randy is also a sharp contrast from the statements given by Alex's attorneys, who said that the Murdoch family fully believes he did not murder anyone and supports him. Randy stated that the family is instead focused on supporting Buster, who has lost all of his immediate family. But by far, one of the most interesting revelations I found about the Murdoch family is that there is a suspicious death that is tied to the Murdochs that dates back to 1940. We already know through Alex scamming Gloria Satterfield's children for insurance money from her untimely death, and Alex botched roadside suicide, that he is no stranger to insurance fraud. It seems like this was a career for Alec. He knew the ins and outs of payouts and how to work the system in his favor to get rich quick. Many have just chalked this up to Alec being corrupt, but no, this goes way deeper than that. Get this, historians have drawn comparisons from Alec Murdoch and his crimes to the 1940 death of Alec's great-grandfather, Randolph Murdoch Sr. A tragic death that, you guessed it, led to a huge payout for the Murdochs. In 1910, Randolph Murdoch Sr. founded the law firm, once known as PMPED, now renamed Parker Law Group LLP, an attempt to distance the firm from Alec and his crimes, and a decade after opening the firm, Randolph was elected solicitor of the 14th Circuit, and so began the family's reign over the Low Country. The Murdochs established a prominent reputation in the Low Country, but then, tragedy. On July 19, 1940, Randolph Sr. was killed in a train accident four miles east of Varnville, South Carolina. Wow, a freak tragedy, right? Not so fast. According to Greenville News, the day he was killed, Randolph Sr., 59, was on his way home from a friend's house when his car suspiciously stopped in the middle of the railroad crossing. Minutes later, a Charleston and Western Carolina freight train slammed into the car, killing Randolph instantly. Randolph Sr. killed? This was huge news. He was a pillar in the community. How could this have happened? Investigators began looking into the accident, and the train's engineer was interviewed. He alleged that as Randolph's car stopped in the middle of the tracks, the engineer saw Randolph lift up his hand and seemingly wave as the train approached. The train engineer didn't see him try to flee, get out of the car, or even yell for help. Randolph simply waved. At the time, many allegedly questioned if this was a suicide or if alcohol was involved. But no one could ever find why Randolph's car stopped in the middle of the train tracks that day. The Hampton coroner eventually ruled it as an accident, 
Randolph's son, Buster Murdaugh Jr., takes his father's position as the 14th Circuit solicitor and in October of that same year, sued the Charleston and Western Carolina Railway for $100,000. That equates to over $2 million in today's world. The case was settled and the Murdoch family received an undisclosed amount. So a tragic death resulted in the Murdochs getting rich. Sound familiar? In the end, all we have are the reports from the train accident and I don't know what really happened that night. But in these kinds of families, a lot of the corruption and dysfunction is generational. A lot of people point to Alec Murdoch alone and think of him as ruining the Murdoch name tanking the legacy all on his own. But I disagree with that. I think this goes back centuries. This runs deep. Investigators and historians continue to look into Alec Murdoch and the entire family, dating back to the start of it all. Shady business dealings, who Alec was involved with, Alec's possible connections to an alleged drug smuggler who once owned Moselle, the very property that Maggie and Paul were killed at. It's oh so very twisted. And the million dollar question, what did Alec do with all the money? He testified that nearly all of it went to his drug habit of 10, 20, 30, 40 opiates a day. But it's believed that there's a lot of money somewhere. Alec Murdoch was turning everything into cash the last few years before the murders. So it's frankly unbelievable that he spent all of the millions he embezzled on opiates for himself. Investigators believe that he has the money stashed somewhere. It's just a matter of finding it. So ultimately, this case is still very much unsolved. This story is still veering off into a hundred different directions at any given moment. I truly believe this is just the tip of the iceberg. And I wonder who or what is going to surface next. So Alex has been found guilty. Is this the end? I don't believe so. I feel that over time, more and more will come out about the Murdochs. After the trial, I watched the prosecution and attorney general give a press conference. One notable detail was highlighting that it doesn't matter who you are, what family you come from, how prominent you are, how much influence you have in your town, no one is above the law. And for all those other prominent, greedy, wealthy, narcissistic, corrupt families watching this case unfold? No, they may be next. So what comes next? What other secrets does this family hold? How many more skeletons will come falling out of the closet? It is now time for Ask Aves, the segment where we cover some of the stories, topics, questions that you all have sent in. First up is from Melina. She writes, Hey Avery, my name is Melina and I just wanted to say you are awesome and your podcast is something I look forward to every week. I replay your episodes when I'm in a spooky mood, which is a lot. Thank you for everything that you do to make each episode amazing. I have a short story from when I was little. I think about it a lot and it's been so long since. When I was six years old, my mom and I were driving home and as we pulled around the corner by my house... I saw a little girl riding this old-style tricycle in a dress that looked like it was from the 50s. I said to my mom, Look, Mommy, her bike is so cool. She stops the car and said, What girl? What bike? I continued to look outside while pointing at the window as I could still see this little girl riding her bike down the sidewalk. 
my mom then told me, I don't see anyone or any bike. I then turn around to look at her and glance back at the window to see she was gone. It still gives a shiver down my spine as I swear I saw this little girl riding her bike, but my mom never saw her and probably thought I was crazy. Thank you again for everything you do and can't wait to hear your next episode. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Melina. No wonder it's stayed in your mind all these years. It's amazing to me how many supernatural experiences kids have. I also feel that younger spirits, ghosts, must feel more comfortable revealing themselves to other children. It's all just really fascinating. And I do wonder who that little girl was and why she chose to reveal herself to you especially. Very interesting and a very cool little supernatural story you got there. Thanks again for sharing. Next up is a really chilling story that comes to us from Christian. It's another haunting encounter with the hat man, an entity we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast. Christian writes, Hello, Avery. I hope you're doing well. I was listening to case 46 of your podcast and your description of the hat man at the end of the episode stoked an ember of an old memory. My dad was a school principal, so we moved around a ton when I was a kid, about every three years. This incident happened in the early 90s, and I was around nine-ish years old. My family was renting a three-bedroom house in Crystal Lake, Illinois. I've had insomnia since I was four years old, and it wasn't unusual for me to wake up three or four times a night. Typically, I'd get up making sure my family members were safe and where they were supposed to be before going back to bed. On the night in question, however, I woke up and the hair on my arm stood up. I was fully awake and could feel someone watching me. Then I saw him. A figure obscured in shadow standing in the corner of my room between my closet and window. I knew he was a man, but don't ask me how I knew. He wasn't wearing a top hat or a trench coat as others have described, but he was slender and shadowy. He had arms proportional to his frame, but I can't recall if he had legs. I froze in terror as the figure moved towards my bed. It wasn't sleep paralysis, though. I could move, I just chose to remain as still as possible. The figure came right up to the edge of my bunk bed and bent down towards me ever so slightly, watching me on the bottom bunk. There was a tiny bit of moonlight coming through my windows, just enough to paint my bedroom in grays, if that makes any sense. His head was maybe three or three and a half feet away from mine, and I was staring directly into his face. But as close as he was to me, I couldn't discern any features. It was just slowly swirling shadow. Now here is where the weirdness really starts. The terror I was feeling evaporated suddenly and was replaced by a profound sense of security. I felt warm and cozy in my bed despite this mysterious figure standing over me. It was like I was unburdened of my worries because I had a protector. I held the figure's gaze for as long as I could, but my eyelids grew heavy and I rolled onto my side, my back to him, and I fell asleep. The fact I was able to go right back to sleep is also bizarre. I used to take two-ish hours for me to conk out due to anxious racing thoughts. Over the next few weeks, the figure visited me a handful of times and each experience was coupled with similar feelings of safety. Then he stopped visiting. My pops got a job at a school in a different district a few years later and we moved away. I've told this story to a handful of people over the years and I hear a lot, you were dreaming or you were bleary eyed and mistook something in your room for him. 
Yes, I was young and it was a long time ago, but I know what I saw and I know what I felt. One person on Reddit believed me and told me it sounded like a watcher spirit. Like I said, Case 46 dredged up the memory and the description of the hat man sounded familiar, sans the terror. So I figured I'd share my story and get your take on it. Thank you so much for writing in, Christian, and sharing your story. That is super wild and unlike any of the other hat man encounters I've ever heard of. And I wonder if that person on Reddit was onto something with the watcher spirit because of your feelings of safety and protection around this entity. And the fact you were able to drift asleep with this entity right there. I lean towards this spirit being connected to that house you lived in as you only encountered it there. And based off your emotions, I think that this spirit was a peaceful one that obviously felt a connection to you. Either way, very cool, and I appreciate you sharing. If anyone has any spooky stories, questions, topics that you want to share and cover on Ask Aves, send those to the email in the show notes. I really love hearing from you all and look forward to opening up my email in the mornings and readings for your messages. You guys are just the best. Until next episode, this is Avery After Dark.